music. Good to see you all out tonight. Thank you for coming back. And just a reminder, no Sunday evening service next Sunday night. I have moved from Ecclesiastes to the book of Psalms. Thought while we are studying the life of David in First and Second Samuel, it might be appropriate to look at some of the Psalms. I'm not necessarily committing myself to go through all 150, but at least we will look at some of the Psalms, and I'm going to be looking at them at least in order. Uh, so we'll be going Psalm 1, etc. Tonight is an introduction to the book of Psalms. Uh, there's a lot of material here. I don't know how much of it we will get through, but uh, you can take it home and look at it. It's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, I try to not make church a seminary class, so we aren't going to be looking at a lot of the other material that one could look at in studying the Psalms, but some of it I will mention as we go through each particular Psalm. I start with a disclaimer, and that is much of the material in this handout comes directly from other sources. The content is not original with me. Unfortunately, when I originally compiled this material, I did not keep track of the resources from which it was taken. Therefore, I'm unable to give credit where credit is due. Uh, when I study, uh, especially in times past, uh, I'm looking more for content and I'm uh, not expecting to publish, etc. Uh, so I don't always document everything that uh, I read and where it is coming from. And uh, that's un unfortunate. Uh, it certainly is not uh, appropriate when I'm putting things out on the internet, but I'm just giving a disclaimer. I'm acknowledging that a lot of this material is not my own. My desire is not to plagiarize, but uh, some of it comes from seminary notes, some of it comes from commentary, some of it comes from other resources. Uh, I look at a lot of things and uh, I, I just can't backtrack it, so I apologize. Moving on, the name of the book. The title in Hebrew means the book of praises. The word psalm is actually a transliteration of the Greek word for songs of praise. Whereas the Hebrew designation of the Psalter broadly expresses the contents of the book as praises, the Greek and English point to the nature of the work as praises to be sung to musical instruments. However, not all the psalms are to be sung. The end of Psalm 72, for example, denotes this particular psalm as a prayer. Psalm 72, verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. But one of the overarching truths concerning the psalms is that primarily they're used for worship. They are intended to be a part of the public worship of Israel uh, as opposed to, to private devotions. Compilation of the Psalter. Nothing is known for certain about the process of compilation. The Psalter appears to have been originally arranged into five books. Book 1 is Psalms 1 to 41. Book 2 is Psalms 42 to 72. Book 3 is Psalms 73 to 89. Book 4 is Psalms 90 to 106. And Book 5 is Psalms 107 to 150. And most of your Bibles, uh, unless you have a, a very uh, limited uh, scripture as far as sticking just solely with the text, but if you have any kind of study Bible or a Bible that uh, gives you other notes, uh, you'll see those demarcations uh, for the various books 
of the Psalms. Each of the books of the Psalter are concluded with doxologies, which helps us to understand what is the overarching purpose of the Psalms. So the first book, Psalm 41, verse 13, ends with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Book 2, Psalm 72, verse 18, ends with, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. Book 3, Psalm 89, verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Book 4, Psalm 106, 48, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And book 5, Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Book 5 concludes with a doxology that consists of the entire psalm. So Psalm 150 is not just a conclusion to the fifth book, but is an overarching conclusion to the entirety of the Psalter, all five books, and it ends with complete praise. Psalm 150, starting with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So you can get a sense of the feel of the Psalms that they are about praising the Lord. The arrangement of the books is uncertain. So now we move to the titles of the Psalms. The titles of the Psalms are part of the text in the Hebrew and thus are to be understood as inspired. Now when I'm referring to the title of the Psalm, uh, look with me at Psalm 3 verse 1 for example, where it says the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. That inscription is in the Hebrew that is inspired. Now you may have a study Bible that also gives this psalm some other title. The titles that are given by the study Bibles are not inspired. They are a summarization of the, uh, of the psalm according to the editors. But these elements, of which we're going to look at in more detail, they are part of the inspired text. Thus they're reliable, uh, thus they are authoritative, uh, thus they are important. B, the titles of the Psalms fall into various categories. All but 34 of the 150 Psalms have some type of title. 13 Psalms are directly related to historical situations in which David found himself. Now I'm not going to read all these verses, I'll read the underlined portion to give you the, the sense. Psalm 3, verse 1, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Psalm 7, verse 1, a shegion of David when he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Psalm 18, 1, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalm 51, verse 1, for the choir director, a psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Psalm 52, verse 1. For the choir director, a masculine of David, when Doag the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Abimelech. Psalm 54, verse 1. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? Psalm 56, verse 1. For the choir director, according to Johath, Elam, Rehokim, a victim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And if you remember, we looked at this psalm in association with that historical event. Psalm 57, verse 1. For the choir director said to uh, Atasheleth, a victim of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Psalm 59, verse 1. For the choir director said of uh, Alchemesh, a, a victim of David, when Saul sent men when they watched the house in order to kill him. Psalm 60, verse 1. Uh, just the underlying section. Uh, a victim of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharahim and with Aram Robah and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Psalm 63, verse 1. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 142, verse 1. A masculine of David when he was in the cave. So if you're going to be looking at these Psalms, it's always helpful to go back and look at the historical event out of which they were written. It gives you insight into the mindset, uh, the situation that's being experienced. It helps us understand why certain things are being said and uh, the response that David has uh, to those particular incidents. They also become very helpful when you look at those incidents in the scripture. Uh, it helps us understand David's mindset and how he viewed uh, many times the outcome of these events. Um, for uh, when it says that they are about the historical situation, doesn't necessarily mean that they are written at that particular moment, but they could be reflections of that experience. And so it gives us a larger panorama of the impact of that particular experience on David's life and his relationship with God, what he learned from it, what he learned from it. And uh, we looked at that, at that light, if you remember, when uh, he had uh, fled to Gath, and we looked at how he was embarrassed over the way in which he had uh, failed to trust in the Lord and was feigning to be uh, mad and letting the, the jewel run down from his mouth. Uh, so he's repentant of those uh, actions. Three, of the titles that do not rate, relate specifically to historical occasions, many involve references to tunes or musical directions. Now, I'm just giving you an example here. I'm not giving you an exhaustive list. Perhaps when we look at those particular psalms, I'll talk about that. But the word alamoth, for example, is very rare. It occurs only in Psalm 46, verse 1, Chronicles 15, 20, and the final word of Psalm 48. Psalm 46, verse 1, a psalm of the songs of Korah set to Alamoth. First uh, Chronicles 15, 20, tuned to Alamoth. It is thought that this word designates a tune to be sung 
by female, female voices. Um, the word Alma is the word for, for woman. Uh, oftentimes it's uh, a virgin. And so uh, that's been even thought that not only is this a statement about uh, a song set for women to sing, but for sopranos, uh, for uh, people of high voices. But it's musical direction. Again, many of these psalms were used and set to music for temple worship. Some titles refer to specific tunes that the psalm is to be sung to. So these psalms were, were written, but sometimes the music to the psalms were not original to the, that psalm. Uh, they were taken from other places, uh, sometimes uh, even uh, popular songs at the time, which was done uh, throughout church history as well. And uh, there are choruses, there are hymns that are set to popular songs. And what is not widely known, but one of the most beloved hymns, uh, A Mighty Fortress uh, is Our God, was actually set to a beer song that was sung in the taverns. And Martin Luther adopted it and put different words to it uh, in order for it to be sung widely. For many people would have known the tune. And, uh, but he put, obviously, very different words uh, to the tune that was used. So the Psalms themselves are set to tunes that were popular of the day. For example, Altasheth, Psalm 57, verse 1. For the choir director set to Altasheth. That is a tune, that is a song, which means do not destroy. Jotham Elam Rakom the dove on far-off terebinths, Psalm 56, verse 1. Ahajla hash-ha-ahar, the hind of the dawn. Shosh-hanim, lilies. Jushin iduth, the lily of the testimony. So here, are, these are just, as I say, popular songs of the day to which the words were set so that it could be sung. Some titles refer to the content of the psalm. And again, this is not exhaustive. Thirteen psalms are referred to as a me, me, a, a me, I'll get it, to a mesquil. These are didactic or teaching psalms. So Psalm 32, verse 1 says, A psalm of David, a mesquil, meaning that it was intended for teaching. It was doctrinally oriented. It was intended to teach truths about the person of God, about his attributes, his character, and about how they were to relate to them. So they were instructional in content. Five psalms are referred to as a prayer. Psalm 17, 86, 90, 102, and 142. Then there are titles that refer to the liturgical use of the psalm. For example, a psalm for the Sabbath day, Psalm 92, verse 1, which says exactly that. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. A psalm for the dedication of the temple, Psalm 30, verse 1. A song of the dedication of the house, 
Now, again, that's very helpful when you look at Chronicles and you look at the dedication, uh, you see what was sung uh, at that particular moment. Uh, it teaches us, again, the use of value of music in the worship service, how it can be very intentional uh, when uh, it is intended to, to celebrate a particular event, such as the dedication of a church or of a building, uh, what to reflect upon, what to, to learn from it. A psalm of ascents, which were sung on pilgrimage to the temple. This is a title given to 15 psalms, Psalms 120 to Psalm 134. So if you, in your Bibles, you will see it will be listed as a psalm of ascent. As the children of Israel went up to Jerusalem, which they did topographically uh, from most areas of Israel, they went up to Jerusalem, and as they talked about going up to Jerusalem, uh, they would sing as they went. They would go in caravans, and uh, they would sing songs, even as uh, we travel together in a bus, and maybe somebody will start singing a song uh, to make the time go uh, quicker. But the point was it was intentional. It wasn't just a way of passing time as they went, but it was preparatory for worship. And it was intended to be instructional for the, for the children to learn and prepare them for uh, the worship in the temple. Uh, they might understand more fully, uh, better. And so music can be very preparatory for worship. And we follow the tradition of usually having a uh, hymn or two or chorus or some kind of uh, music played before the morning service, and that is more than just simply a sign that we're about ready to start, so you need to quit talking and be quiet, all right? Uh, that's not the ultimate purpose of playing those songs, but it's rather it's to prepare our hearts, to get us ready, uh, to cause us to be reflective, to, to think about the words that are going with the songs that are being played, uh, so that we are ready to put aside all the hubbub and everything that's been going on throughout the week, and we're ready to, to focus upon the things of God. So the Psalms were used in that way. Then there are titles that refer to authorship. These titles may refer to the author of the Psalms, or perhaps the person for whom the Psalm was intended. It could be either, as far as the Hebrew grammar is concerned, most likely the titles refer to the author of the psalm. Psalm 73, or almost one half of the psalms, are attributed to David. <clears throat> now, so not all, but <clears throat> 73 of the 150 are ascribed to David. David wrote almost half of the psalms. One psalm is attributed to Moses, Psalm 90, verse 1, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Two psalms are attributed to Solomon. Psalm 72, verse 1, a psalm of Solomon. And Psalm 127, 1, a song of ascents of Solomon. D, 12 psalms are attributed to the sons of Asaph. Psalm 50 and Psalms 73 to 83. Now here's where the biggest debate comes in as to whether or not they were written by the sons of Asaph or that they were given to the sons of Asaph to prepare for worship. Uh, there's no reason to think that they did not 
white uh, psalms themselves, and uh, they may well have. Uh, <clears throat> Ten psalms were attributed to the sons of Korah. There is some discrepancy as to whether or not there are 11. Psalm 42, 44 to 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. Uh, now, going back to this discrepancy, one of the issues is, of course, that the, the Psalms are inspired. Uh, so, uh, with that intent, the question is, were uh, the sons of Asaph, were they writing inspired scripture? Were the sons of Korah writing inspired scripture? Uh, both Asaph and Korah are musicians. So, uh, was this material given to them uh, to be used, or did they write it? There's no way of definitively answering that question. One psalm is attributed to Haman the Ezraite, Psalm 88, verse 1, a masculine of Haman the Ezraite. I'm going so quickly that what I thought I wouldn't get through, we might end up early. Uh, so maybe I can slow down. <clears throat> Number four, literary devices in the Psalms. This can be very helpful in interpreting a psalm uh, to look for the uh, literary devices, the structure of the psalm. Uh, remembering that these basically are poems, uh, poems are, that are set to music, as uh, a lot of Music is, they are put out there in poetical form. And so, as you think about poetic structure, it's not surprising to find that you find the poetic structure in the Psalms themselves. <clears throat> there are four main types of parallelism in the poetry of the Psalms. The first is synonymous parallelism. That is, that which consists of expressing similar content more than once in consecutive lines in similar grammatical form or sentence structure. So these are repetitive lines in which the second line is synonymous with the first line. Psalm 46, verse 7, Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Psalm 47, verse 5, God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The entirety of Psalm 114 consists of synonymous parallelism. Psalm 114, verse 1. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. So you notice that Israel, then in, verse, in the second half of the verse, is equated with the house of Jacob, and Egypt is equated with a people of strange language. Judah became his sanctuary. Israel equates with Judah. His dominion relates to his sanctuary. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. The sea is synonymous with Jordan. The fleeing is synonymous with turning back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. So mountains and hills, rams and lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. So there's synonymous 
parallelism. And looking for that helps you explain the imagery more clearly. Then there is antithetic parallelism in which the second line states the truth of the first line in a contrasting way. Sometimes one line states the idea positively and the other negatively. For example, now we went to the Proverbs because uh, they too are poetic uh, and uh, it's best seen. Proverbs 6.20, my son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Proverbs 12.26, the righteous is a guide to the neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Uh, so that you have the antithetical thought in the second half of the verse. Then there is climactic parallelism, in which the second line completes the first by repeating part of the first line and then adding to it. Psalm 96, verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord. Now it tells us what? Glory and strength. It completes the idea of the first line. Psalm 93, verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. So you see this unfolding. What is the voice that is referred to? It's the pounding waves. It's as though the pounding waves were speaking. You can hear the roar of the waves. Uh, that's the thought. So it's helpful as you understand these parallelisms to work your way through the psalm and get a better understanding of the imagery. For the psalms are filled with imagery and of metaphor. And then there is synthetic parallelism. It consists of a pair of lines that together form a complete unit and in which the second line completes or expands the thought introduced in the first line but without repeating it as in climactic parallelism. That's the difference. It completes the idea, but it doesn't repeat it. Psalm 23, verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. In the presence of my enemies is talking about what is prepared, the table. The table. The table is prepared in the presence of my enemies. Then there is strophe or stanza divisions. And I know I'm going through this quickly, but a strophe or a stanza are a series of verses which are combined to form a unit in a psalm. These stanzas may consist of varying number of lines or verses. The stanzas are often marked by one of three literary devices. So these stanzas are the division, if you will, of the psalm. These are natural divisions. When we think of hymns, uh, usually there are stanzas. There's the first, second, third, fourth stanza. Usually they're all the same length and they are very straightforward. The Psalms are not necessarily of the same length at all. Uh, there are some very short stanzas, there are longer stanzas, but the point is they are distinct uh, breaks in the Psalm. So there are three types of stanza divisions. One device is repeat, repeated refrain throughout the psalm. So starting at Psalm 107, verse 1, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. 
Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that he might go to a city of habitation. And now here's the marker. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That's one unit. That's one thought. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in the darkness and the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against his words of God and continued the counsel of the Most High, and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and break their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That should have been uh, emboldened there. Uh, there's the next demarcation. Psalm 107, verse 16. For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because their iniquities are afflicted, their soul abhors all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distress. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Then over to the next page. I'm not going to read it all. Psalm 107, verse 31. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his works to the children of men. And so these demarcations, and so each one of those stanzas are a unit. They have a similar experience or circumstance to which they speak. And then it moves to another. And the repetition is to demonstrate that there are so many different ways in which we need to, there are so many different reasons for which we are to be thankful. So many different ways in which we should be speaking of what God has accomplished and done for us. And we should be vocal. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his works to the children of men. That we would talk to one another about the blessings of God in our lives. I'm going to go to Page 12. The use of the term Selah. Selah is a musical term which means to lift up. Perhaps this was an instrumental interlude during the song. Most likely it was meant to be an emphasis for Reflection. So the word selah simply means to lift up. Therefore, it is thought that there is a musical interlude of which the instruments play louder and you just sit and reflect on what has just been said, what has just been sung. But notice uh, the uh, demarcation, and uh, this is quite common in the Psalms. 
Psalm 3, verse 1. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. And we're going to be looking at this event in Sunday morning in just a few weeks. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. Stop. Think about that. Reflect. But thou, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory in the one who is this my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Stop. Reflect. Think about that contrasting situation. As a result, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Sets themselves, uh, Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. See how that contrasts with verse one. Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Here's the thought process that the psalmist goes through. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Selah. Think about that. Then there's the use of acrostics. In Psalm 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, 119, and uh, Pastor uh, Cruz has been going through Psalm 110, has mentioned that, and Psalm 145. An acrostic is a literary form which uses the first letter and the first word of a line to build a structure. The alphabetic acrostics do not survive translation. They can only be seen in the Hebrew. So they're meaningless to us as far as our English Bibles are concerned. We lose sight of this. But in the Hebrew, it's, it's quite impressive, especially Psalm 119, where each one of those sections, and if you read your Bible, you'll see the Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, He, Wow, Zion sections. And it means that in that Aleph section, Aleph is the first Hebrew letter of the Hebrew al alphabet, and every line starts with a, a word that has Aleph as its first letter. In the second stanza, the Beth stanza, every line starts with a Hebrew word that has Beth as the first letter of that word. So it's very striking when you see it in the Hebrew. Uh, it is meant to be a poetical device of which it is of no value except the beauty that it represents. But that is also helpful for us and instructive of the way in which worship is intended to be beautiful and intended to be creative. That there is a place in worship for simply having that which is ornate. Uh, we have departed from that uh, somewhat in the modern day. We have become so 
uh, pragmatic about utilization of facilities and making them as uh, cost effective and as austere as possible. But uh, I was just uh, talking with uh, a group of men on uh, Tuesday night uh, about the Sistine Chapel and the awesomeness of walking into that building. Chris Morris was talking about it. I haven't been there in person, uh, but, he, but he's just describing it, and it is incredible. And it was intended to be. It was intended to, to just wow you so that you walked into the building and you just had a sense that this was different than any other place you'd been. And it's a helpful reminder that when we, we come to worship, whether we worship in a storefront, whether we worship in a warehouse, or we worship in a beautiful sanctuary, coming to worship should be different than when we are coming to a concert, or we're coming to a play, or we're coming to a show. It's different. It's different. And we should stand in awe before God. We should be brought up short. In our worship, we should acknowledge that God is so higher than we, that, that God is so greater than we, and that God is so beautiful, and his creation is gorgeous. So the, the Psalms are literally depicting that creativity. Remember, God is the creator, and being Created in his image means that we too are to be creators. That he has given us the ability, he's given us talent to creatively express our love for God and his goodness. And so uh, many times that's, that's done through the worship music. And we're thankful for those people that have that ability to express uh, for us uh, things that we would like to express, and, and they uh, help us do so in our, our worship of him through song. Then there is imagery in the book of Psalms. The Psalms are filled with metaphor to be, depict truth. They are images which are taken from everyday life to beautifully and more vividly convey the psalmist's thoughts. They are word pictures, and they are very helpful. Many of these images are taken from an agrarian society. Trees and chaff illustrate the contrast between useful and the useless. The living and the dead, the weighty and the trivial, the strong and the weak, the permanent and the transient. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands away with sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth meditate day and night. And he shall be like the tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. But, and, uh, but the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Um, the chaff. Uh, when, when you think of a, in modern day, uh, you, you see a combine. And the combine works in the very same way as a screen a sieve worked many years ago. And that is it shakes the kernel of the, of the grain and as it shakes it, the kernel goes into the bin and the chaff, the external 
part of that grain head will fall to the ground, for it is useless. It is valueless. It is of no benefit. Stubborn sinners are like horses and mules, Psalm 32.9, which talks about being not like the horse or the mule whose whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. <clears throat> but God's people should be sheep who faithfully follow their shepherd. Psalm 23, 77, 20, 78, 52, 79, 13, 80, verse 1, 95, verse 7, 100, verse 3. So these pictures, sheep that follow the shepherd. Don't be like the horse or the mule who have a tendency to rebel and must be reined in. Third, the psalmist compared their enemies to snarling, growling dogs. Psalm 20, Psalm 22, 16, Psalm 59, verse 6. Bees, uh, that should be 118, 12. Lions, 7, 2, uh, 10, 9 to 10. Bulls and oxen, 22, 12 to 21. Uh, these are like brute beasts. Uh, these are animals. And the ungodly are just like these animals that oppress. There's much bird imagery in the Psalms. At one time or another, all of us have probably felt like fleeing like a bird, Psalm 11, verse 1, and escaping uncomfortable and difficult situations. Oh, that I had the wings of doves. I would fly and be at rest, Psalm 55, verse 6. In Psalm 102, the psalmist felt like an owl among the ruins, like a bird on a roof. And God's suffering people have been like hunted birds, Psalm 91, verse 3, Psalm 124, verse 7. David rejoiced that God would renew his youth like the eagles, Psalm 103, verse 5. That imagery is used quite extensively in the scriptures, to have one's youth renewed like the eagles, most likely a reference to the freshness of eagle after molting, uh, after they have gone through this process, this renewal. As you think about that, it just fleshes out for us this imagery. There's the imagery borrowed from warfare. There are at least 15 references to God as the believer's shield, who serves as our defense from the onslaught of the enemy. And you can see the Psalms that are listed there. There are four references to God as our fortress, the one to whom we can go and feel safe. Psalm 118, uh, Psalm 18, verse 2. And you notice now uh, this psalm is illustrative of a lot of things. First, the parallelism in my, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. And now notice the parallelism, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. The rock, the rock, the refuge, which is the fortress. You, you think of the, the old westerns. I don't even know how many of those old westerns are on TV anymore unless you you watch them on some kind of cable show or me TV or something. But you know that the Indians would be out after the, the troops, and the troops were riding as fast as they could to get back to the fort. Because if they could get within the confines of those gates, the gates would open up, they would go in, and the, and the Indians would follow them, and they're shooting their arrows, but they were safe because they were in the fort. Well, that's the imagery here. God is our refuge. God is our fortress. God is our fort. He is the one to whom we flee. As we go to him, he protects us. The arrows, as it were, cannot harm us. 
For we're behind his walls. We're behind his protection. Number three, arrows appear 11 times, serving as that which assails or attacks. And you see the Psalms listed there. So the concluding example of imagery and parallelism, Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, which is synonymous with the Lord, my rock, which is synonymous with rock, in whom I take refuge, which is synonymous with fortress. That is not exhausted by any means. But I know that we are here by a lot of different age groups and a lot of different uh, levels of interest, etc. Uh, so I'm not going to go into much more of that, except uh, when I look at particular psalms, I might point some things out. For it is helpful in, in Bible study uh, to try to keep those things in mind as you read through the psalms because they will become a lot more alive to you. And they'll become a lot more understandable. Uh, as you pick up the parallelism, uh, the one will describe what the other means, and it will help you understand exactly what the imagery is intended to portray. For example, what I mean by that is a fortress is defensive. You don't fight from a fort. You need to go outside the gates of the fort in order to attack and in order to go on the offensive. A fort is a place of refuge. It's a place of deliverance. It's a place of help. It's a defensive place. So when it's talking about God is our refuge, it's talking about God is our defender. God is our protector. God is our keeper so that we don't have to go out and do the battle. But rather, we can be behind the walls and be safe. It teaches us we don't have to take matters into our own hands. It teaches that, that God can protect us from our enemies when we ourselves are incapable of doing so. I can flee to him. And that imagery, fleeing to God, what does that mean? Fleeing to God. Well, he's our fort. To flee to him is to go to him for our protection. Go to him for our help. Go to him in our time of need. When our enemies are round about us, oh God, deliver us. Keep us. Protect us. The arrows are flying. but you can keep me safe. So the, the imagery of the Psalms is very helpful, very striking. Next week, I'm going to start working, uh, starting with Psalm 1 and just working through the Psalms. Not next week. Next week is 4th of July. We're not having service next Sunday night, so don't come. But the following Sunday, Lord willing, we'll start with Psalm 1. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. Help us in the study of Psalms. May it prove to be valuable to us. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us 
uh, through these wonderful psalms. And uh, Lord, may they delight us and fill our hearts with praise as they are intended to result in praise giving to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed. <laughs>